Will you take your Bibles, turn to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. If you have not been with us, we go verse by verse through whatever book is before us, and we come now to Daniel chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 20 through 24 today under the heading 77s. 77s, and you will understand that more as we get into the text. I was thinking this week that there's probably never been a more sobering era in human history to study Bible prophecy than in the days in which we live right now. We live in an age of idolatry and sexual deviancy, fear, insanity, government corruption, and authoritarianism. We continue to witness the the power of fear as these corrupt pharmaceutical companies with their own regulators, with the fox guarding the hen house, as you might say, continue to push their experimental vaccines on people, now even on our children, to protect us from a virus that has just a fraction of a fraction of a percent of killing you. The deception and the corruption even within the CDC, the NIH, the FDA is routinely censored. I've been looking into this a lot here of late because so many of you are asking me about this. Certainly, I'm not here to give you the pros and cons of the vaccine. But I can tell you that much of the adverse reactions to this vaccine are being censored. Only onset treatment is being censored. We see big pharma's collaborative efforts with world governments, big tech. With, with media, national and international public health organizations, all working together to control the money, control the power, controlling economies. They control governments around the world, even our own children, our families, our careers, all under the guise of promoting and preserving health. And out of all of this, we see authoritarianism rising in the United States of America like never before. Neo-Marxist Democrats will tell us we know best. So we will tell you what to do, what to think, how to teach your children. And so we experience today censorship, lockdowns, mandates, job loss, slander of those who dare say anything contrary to the agenda, the officials of the CDC and the WHO. All of this is commonplace. Perhaps you just heard on the news, and I read the letter from the CDC, that after a formal demand, the CDC now concedes it has no proof of a single instance of a naturally immune individual spreading the virus. And yet the deceptions go on, the pressure goes on. Folks, totalitarian regimes have always used fear to control people. One of the first things to go will be free speech. That's what we're seeing like never before. Another reason why I believe this is prime time to study Bible prophecy is because of the rise of apostate Christianity. I would argue that the vast majority of evangelicalism today is thoroughly apostate, consistent with what Jesus said in Matthew 7 and many other passages. Luke 18, verse 8, Jesus said, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The idea being that not much. Remember when judgment came before with Noah, there were how many faithful ones? 
8. And Jesus tells us that when he comes again, it will be like in the days of Noah. His return will be marked by persecution, apostasy, and unbelief, even among those who name the name of Christ. Today we look around in the so-called evangelical church, and we see sodomites, lesbians, transgender deceivers filling pulpits, apostasy in the form of this wake, woke cult is overtaking the ranks of evangelicalism at an alarming rate. Class warfare heretics preach their Marxist oppressor, oppressed ideology under the banner of redemptive social justice. I hear this stuff and I just shake my head. That somehow the redemptive work of Christ to reconcile sinners unto himself is equal to the redemptive work of social redeemers, of leftists, to reconcile sinful white people to oppressed minorities. And then to have the audacity to claim that their definitions of, of justice and righteousness and the gospel bear the same weight of authority as that which is in the word of God. Folks, it's not only ludicrous, it's blasphemous. And I just wonder, how much longer will God tolerate this escalation of evil before the nostrils of God begin to flare and he rises from his throne and he says, this is it. And he sets into motion the great day of his wrath. A day that is repeated throughout the Old Testament and even into the New the Old Testament prophets called it the day of the Lord. Folks, this is coming. The Lord Jesus Christ warned of this as well in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, where he described the unparalleled sufferings that will come upon the earth just prior to his return. It's also described in the book of Revelation as the time when, quote, the wrath of the, of the Lamb will be poured out upon quote, the inhabitants of the earth. And that will happen through a succession of dreadful cataclysms known as the seal and the trumpet and the bowl judgments. And I might add that by comparison, the horrors associated with the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 pale in comparison. The Holocaust pales in comparison to what is coming upon this earth. These final judgments will come culminate in the greatest of all eschatological conflicts known as the Battle of Armageddon. You read about it in Revelation 16. This is also known as, quote, the Day of Vengeance, according to Deuteronomy 32, verse 14, and Isaiah 30, 63 and verse 4. I want to read you a passage of Scripture before we get to Daniel. Actually, I want to read several to help you get the context here. In Isaiah 13, the Lord speaks through his prophet and he looks beyond, in this prophecy, beyond the immediate conquest of the Medo-Persians against Babylon to a greater and final destruction of Babylon that will occur by the Messiah when he returns. And in Isaiah 13, beginning in verse 6, we read this. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold. 
and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken in its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. Beloved, the world in which we live is marching inexorably, inexorably towards this day of judgment. Jesus' ominous words in Matthew 24, 15 and verse 21 and following describe this period known as the Great Tribulation. And when you read about it, it just sends shivers up your spine. There Jesus says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Jesus tells us that this will catch people unaware. They've ignored the warnings. He goes on to say in verse 36, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until that until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. They were preoccupied with all of the commonplace, mundane matters of life, life as usual. Don't pay any attention to what that Bible says or those crazy preachers tell you. By the way, Jesus also gave some good news in that prophecy. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 29. First, he says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then, here's the good news, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Since the church will have been translated to heaven in the rapture, the elect refers to Jews and Gentiles that are saved during the time of the tribulation. That's the way the term is used throughout the Olivet Discourse. And dear friends, this will put an end to the times of the Gentiles that we've been looking at in the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel confirms these prophetic realities. My dear and departed friend, Dr. David Larson, offers an excellent summary of this as we read in Daniel. He says this, the times of the Gentiles culminate in judgment as portrayed by the prophet Daniel's metallic colossus in Daniel 2. The structure of Gentile world power persists to the end of the age and ultimate ruination when struck by the rock cut out of a mountain but not made by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. Daniel 2.45 The metals, while decreasing in value, increase in sheer strength until we come to the mixed iron and clay and the feet and the ten toes, corresponding to the great image of the four beasts of Daniel 7. Out of the last of which creatures come ten horns, Daniel 7, 7 and following. He goes on to say, among these ten horns arises a little horn of a particularly devious sort who wages war against the saints, Jews who were saved in the tribulation period, and indeed inflicts great duress upon them, quote, until the day, ancient of days, came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. This time of suffering for the saints, the Jewish messianic woes, is the trauma preparatory to the establishment of the messianic kingdom. And he adds, the little horn should be seen as the Antichrist. 
Well, with this now, we return to Daniel 9. And in the first 19 verses, you will recall that Daniel offers a heartfelt confession of sin, both his as well as his Israeli kinsmen. And he also intercedes on their behalf, pleading for not only forgiveness, but also restoration for a regathering of Israel to her land, a restoration that would also be spiritual, that the glory of God might be put on display in them before the world. He understood from his study of the word of God, uh, especially as he was looking at what Jeremiah said, that God was going to impose 70 years of judgment upon Israel because of their idolatry and for their deliberate neglect of his sabbatical years. We see these warnings in Leviticus 26. And Daniel, of course, as you might remember, was wondering hmm, how and when this captivity, when this exile is going to end. But as we are going to see, God's answer encompasses a far greater deliverance than what he was talking about. Deliverance from their captivity. His plan included the deliverance from a more formidable enemy. The enemy of sin, the culprit that caused all of the problems to begin with. A remedy that could only be accomplished by Christ's death on the cross at his first coming. Moreover, God is going to look beyond their Gentile oppressors in Babylon and the others to a final day when they will be forever delivered from all earthly oppressors and all of this will be accomplished but <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ at his second coming well all of this is going to require 490 years 70 weeks of years or 77s and we're going to see that these are divided into two seasons of deliverance I'm giving you a little summary of what we're going to study at great length. The first season will require 69 weeks of years. In other words, 483 years, and that will lead up to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then after an indefinite period of time, that final 70th week would ensue, a time yet future, culminating in the second coming of the Messiah King with his armies from heaven who will destroy the Antichrist who is bent on exterminating all of ethnic Israel and all Christians who live during that time, even Gentiles, all who refuse to worship him. Daniel gives the details of this in Daniel 7. And so let's look at God's answer now to Daniel's prayer, beginning in verse 20 of Daniel 9. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God. Let's pause here. I want you to look at this. The mountain of my God. In other words, on the basis of the city of Jerusalem and the restoration of your temple where your people worship, that's what he's looking at here. And I might add, this is an important distinction. He's not praying for the church. He's not praying for the body of Christ or for all of the elect down through redemptive history. This present church economy or the stewardship of God's grace was hidden to Daniel. It was hidden to the Old Testament prophets. Read about this in Ephesians 3, 2 through 10. Romans 16, 25 through 26, the focus of God's, of his prayer to God and the answers that God gives him has to do with the, the restoration of, quote, your desolate sanctuary, as we saw in verse 17. In verse 18, oh my God, he says, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. So God's answer will address his dealings with Israel on the basis of his covenant promises to them that will indeed, 
that he will indeed fulfill all that he has promised to them. That's what Daniel, that's what all of them were looking for. And this is one of many reasons why I believe the church will not go through the tribulation. That's another whole study. The church will not be a part of Daniel's 70th week. There God is focusing on his promises to Israel. There's many other exegetical reasons why I would argue that. But throughout Scripture, and especially here in Daniel 9, we see God's plan for Israel is distinct from his plan for the church. The church will later on become the temporary custodians of God's truth. And I might add that I do not believe that the church has permanently replaced Israel in God's plan of redemption. Many people teach that and believe that. Some of my very best friends believe that. I do not see that in Scripture. This is certainly not a test of orthodoxy. But it's an important distinction if you're going to understand what we believe here at Calvary Bible Church with, res with respect to premillennialism. This is an important distinction, and I might add it's worthy of a bit of a digression here, if you will bear with me. I do not believe that ethnic, national, territorial Israel are all permanently absorbed into the universal Christian church, thereby permanently eliminating their national identity. This is often known as... Uh, um, Augustinian or Roman Catholic eschatology. Sometimes it's called supersessionism, amillennialism, replacement theology, and so forth. I do not believe that all of the promises given to Israel in the Old Testament were forfeited by their unbelief. I don't see that in Scripture. I don't believe that all of those promises are now given to the church in some spiritual sense as God's chosen people to be his witness, his witnesses, Israel failed miserably. Indeed, they did. But is there a level of sin that surpasses grace? I think not. Psalm 130 and verse 3, If thou, Lord, O Lord, shouldst mark iniquities, who could stand? However, as we look at Scripture, because they, quote, rejected the chief cornerstone, Matthew 21, 42. Jesus said in verse 43, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. Now the supersessionists will argue that here Jesus permanently rejects the nation of Israel and the nation to whom the kingdom would be given is now the church. I think that is highly unlikely for several reasons. Just briefly, if we look at this text, we see that Jesus is addressing the chief priests and the Pharisees. He's addressing these wicked, hypocritical leaders of Israel that, determined, that were determined to kill him. He was not addressing Israel as a nation, as a whole. In fact, three verses later in verse 45, Matthew tells us that the religious leaders, quote, understood that he, Jesus, was speaking about them. Although Jesus' antipathy towards the Jewish leaders uh, continued to increase throughout his earthly ministry, he never shows any contempt for the multitudes. In fact, on the previous day, he, he, we see how he wept over Jerusalem. and They constantly acclaimed him as the messianic son of David. Furthermore, other passages in Matthew's gospel reaffirms the idea that Jesus fully anticipated Israel's future restoration. In chapter 19, verse 28, he offers much needed reassurance to the disciples. And he says, truly, I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You who have followed me in the regeneration, palingenesia in the original language, it literally means rebirth, regeneration. It's referring to the messianic age, clearly a reference to the earthly kingdom described in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 5. It'll be when, he says, the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, and you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. 
I might add that Peter also understood Jesus' words in Matthew 19.28. He understood that he was referring to a messianic kingdom. He wasn't referring to the church. Later, when Peter called the men of Israel to repentance in Acts 3, in verses 20 through 21, he spoke of, quote, the Christ appointed for you whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. You see, none of the prophets had spoken about the church. None of them had spoken about the inclusion of both believing Jews and Gentiles in a new spiritual community, the body of Christ. That was a mystery not disclosed in the Old Testament. Romans 16, verse 25, we read that it's a mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. We see the same thing in Ephesians 3, 2 through 6. So back to Matthew 21, 43. Therefore, I say to you, referring to the wicked leaders of Israel, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a nation, an ethnos, a new nation spiritually, but also the same nation historically, a restored future Israel. We read about it in Romans 11, 11 through 15, a nation that will experience a new birth. Isaiah 66, 5 through 13, a nation producing the fruit of it and so forth. Another passage affirming the restoration of Israel and why I see a distinction between Israel and the church. And I believe that's what Daniel is seeing and what God is speaking about in Daniel 9. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, we learn that Jesus met with his disciples for a period of 40 days after his resurrection. 40 days. And what was the main topic that Jesus spoke about? He was speaking, it says, of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Then in verses 6 through 7, Luke records Jesus' final interchange with his apostles before his, essential, his ascension, when he once again affirmed the idea of restoration of national Israel. There we read, when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to, to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now, I would humbly submit to you that if God was finished with his covenant people, Israel, and the church had therefore permanently replaced her as a new spiritual Israel, this would have been a perfect place for Jesus to have made that abundantly clear. If that were true, why wouldn't he have corrected them? Why wouldn't he have said, no, 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 wait a minute. I've been with you for 40 days speaking to you concerning the kingdom of God. Don't you understand that ethnic, national, and territorial Israel is now absorbed into the universal Christian church, thereby eliminating their national identity? Don't you understand that the physical messianic kingdom once promised to Israel has now been changed to a spiritual kingdom and you're living in it right now? Don't you guys get that? Well, obviously he didn't say that because I don't believe any of that's true. Romans 11 in verse 1, Paul said, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. The apostles understood this. And like Paul, they longed to see the spiritual salvation and the physical restoration of their nation Israel. So it was appropriate for them to ask, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? We can go to the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 9, the focus is on Israel's election. He assures them that God has not forgotten. He has not rejected his chosen people. Quite the contrary. In chapter 10, the focus is on Israel's defection. There the Apostle Paul explains why Jews rejected their Messiah and remain in ignorance and unbelief. Why salvation is now extended to the Gentiles, all of which is part of God's plan even for Israel. And then in chapter 11, the focus is on Israel's salvation. God made it very clear that the specific promises that he had made to his chosen nation would come to fruition. 
Now, some of those were conditional, dependent upon their obedience, but his greatest promises were unconditional, based upon God's character. And to this day, because of their unbelief, God is disciplining them as a nation. They have been temporarily put aside, as Paul says in verse 25, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then in verse 26, eventually he says, all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So I'm convinced that Israel was God's unique focus of redemption in one dispensation in the Old Testament, while the church, consisting of both Jews and Gentiles, has been his focus since their rejection of Jesus. However, I believe Scripture teaches that God will eventually focus once again on Israel during the millennial reign of Christ on earth when all of the covenant promises that he has made to Israel will be fulfilled literally, including the, the earthly blessings and the earthly messianic kingdom. Prophetic literature is filled with the pivotal role Israel plays during that time. So I believe that the church shares in the promises of Israel, but not in their unique identity. And in that, he says, quote, The prophecies concerning Israel are the key to all the rest. True principles of interpretation in regard to them will aid us in disentangling and illustrating all prophecy together. False principles as to them will most thoroughly perplex and overcloud the whole word of God, end quote. And speaking on Ezekiel 37 that we read earlier in our scripture reason, reading, in 1864 at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, Charles Spurgeon was soliciting funding for the British Society for the Propagation of the Gospel Amongst the Jews. And Spurgeon declared this, quote, The meaning of our text, referring to Ezekiel 37, the dry bones that come to life and so forth, the meaning of our text as opened up by the context is most evidently, if words mean anything, first, there shall be a political restoration of the Jews to their own land and to their own nationality. And then secondly, there is in the text and in the context a most plain declaration that there shall be a spiritual restoration, a conversion, in fact, of the tribes of Israel. He went on to say, her sons, though they can never forget the sacred dust of Palestine, yet die at a hopeless distance from her consecrated shores. But it shall not be so forever. They shall again walk upon her mountains, shall once more sit under her vines and rejoice under her fig trees. And they are also to be reunited. They shall not be two, nor ten, nor twelve, but one. One Israel praising one God, serving one king, and that one king, the son of David, the descended Messiah. They are to have a national prosperity which shall make them famous. Nay, so glorious shall they be that Egypt and Tyre and Greece and Rome shall all forget their glory and the greater splendor of the throne of David. And then Spurgeon said this, If there be meaning in words, this must be the meaning of this chapter. I wish never to learn the art of tearing God's meaning out of his own words. If there be anything clear and plain, the literal sense and meaning of this passage a meaning not to be spirited or spiritualized away, must be evident that both the two and the ten tribes of Israel are to be restored to their own land and that a king is to rule over them. Now, after a long and weighty digression that I felt was important for me to get out, back to Daniel 9, verse 21. While I was speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. That's a reference to the meal and drink offering. It would have been between 3 and 4 p.m. I find it intriguing here. He speaks of his extreme weariness. Any of us who have labored long hours in prayer for that which is burdening our hearts, we know that it is difficult 
even physically. But isn't it interesting? It had been 70 years since Daniel had offered these sacrifices in Jerusalem. Now the temple is destroyed, but notice he continues to worship the Lord as if he was right there in the temple, as if nothing had ever changed. Would that we all be so faithful in honoring the Lord. Verse 22, he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are a highly esteemed, or for you are highly esteemed. It could be translated counted precious. So God hears his prayer, dispatches Gabriel to answer it. And then Gabriel says, so give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. And here he begins. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Now, 70 weeks, literally 70 sevens or 70 heptads, units of seven. So 70 times 70, 490 years have been decreed. The term decreed comes from a, a Hebrew work, kothak, and it means to divide, to determine, uh, uh, to, to, to cut off, to, to decide something, to determine something. And so this 70 weeks has been divided, it's been cut off for your people in your holy city. And so in other words, God has deliberately determined that these 490 years would be cut off from all the rest of history to accomplish his purposes in delivering the people of Israel and their capital city, Jerusalem. And that's all consistent with Daniel's prayer, which, by the way, did not happen. All of those things did not happen when Jesus came the first time. Now, I want to focus on these six magnificent objectives that are to be accomplished in this regard. Notice what he says. Again, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So here, beloved, God reveals the future. Events, I might add, that are far beyond that which occurred with Antiochus Epiphanes. Far beyond the events surrounding the first coming of Christ. Far beyond anything that has ever happened in history. So in other words, 490 years of judgment must occur before these six glorious objectives can be realized all of which look to the messianic kingdom on earth, all consistent with Old Testament prophecy, even New Testament prophecy. For example, in Acts 3, verse 19, we read, Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Again, go to Romans 11, beginning in verse 12. Paul says, now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Referring to the unbelieving Jewish people. Verse 15, for if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And in verse 40, or 25, for I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, you Gentiles. But from the standpoint of God's choice, 
They are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So again, six magnificent objectives are to be accomplished during this 490 years. The first three are all negative realities that must be eradicated, namely man's global rebellion against the Most High God. So the goal first here is to deal with sin and Satan, both of which are defeated at the cross. The first three are to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity. Now, it's important that we look at these closely because if you're like most people, you come to a passage like this, you read through it, have no real idea of what it said, but you kind of move on to something else that'll kind of speak to your heart. Well, you're missing out on a whole lot. So let's don't do that. Notice what the Spirit of God says through Gabriel. First of all, to finish or it could be translated restrain the transgression. Transgression here is a term used to describe the violation of God's law, those that revolt against God's authority, specifically Israel's unrelenting and unrestrained rebellion against God. If we were to go to Ezekiel chapter 20, beginning in verse 34, you'll see how the prophet describes the elimination of all the apostates from the land of Israel during the millennium. And Jesus described the same thing is going to happen among the Gentile nations in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, Matthew 25. In fact, during Christ's earthly reign, Isaiah 11 and verse 10 tells us that the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Can you imagine that? Sin will not be completely eliminated because unregenerate children will be born to those who enter into the millennial reign of of Christ. And many of those unregenerate children will continue to reject Christ. So there will be occasional situations of, of rebellion requiring the Lord to rule over them with a rod of iron, as we're told. But that's going to be the exception, not the rule. Christ himself during that time is going to restrain sin during his reign, but it will be utterly non-existent in the eternal state. You must bear in mind that the millennial reign of Christ is the consummating bridge between human history and the eternal state where sin will be eradicated completely. He then uses Gabriel now uses nuances of terms and repetition in these parallel clauses. He says not only to finish the transgression, but also to make an end of sin. This is something else that's got to happen during this 490-year period, to make an end of sin. Here the term for sin is a, a more general term for all wrongs. And it carries the idea here when he says to make an end of is to seal it up that it might be concealed. Uh, even the idea of judging it with finality. And again, these are nuances. They're almost synonyms of all that God is going to do with respect to sin. Hebrews 9 and verse 26, we read, But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So all of that was set into motion at the cross. But then there's this magnificent climax He says also to make atonement for iniquity. Atonement, the Hebrew term kafar, it means to cover by means of an expiatory sacrifice or literally uh, to to make a covering, uh, covering, to provide a, a moral repayment for a fault or an injury. In fact, if we look at Scripture, we see progressive revelation in how the death of Christ was foreshadowed by many Old Testament types and, and symbols. Remember the coats of skin that God made for Adam and Eve in the garden? That was a picture of a coming Redeemer. The animal offering of Abel in, Abel in Genesis 4. The offering of Isaac by Abraham in Genesis 22. 
It goes on with the Old Testament sacrificial system that we read about, especially in Leviticus 17, the brazen serpent erected by Moses in Numbers 21, the Passover lamb in Exodus 12. All of these things point towards an atonement. Atonement, by the way, always involves two things, satisfaction and substitution. Satisfaction of the offended holiness of God, accomplished only by an acceptable substitution. An innocent life must be given for the guilty one who has offended the holiness of God. And this is why Jesus had to taste death for everyone, right? This is how salvation is made possible. This is the only way God can forgive sin and still remain holy. And with this accomplished, the way is paved for the second three positive objectives in this 490 years. And that is, number one, to bring in everlasting righteousness. I'm reminded of Isaiah's prophecy to Judah in Isaiah 5. In verse 7, he says, he speaks of Israel as the, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his delightful plant. And so given the idea here is given all that God has done for him, for, for them, he, he's expecting them to do better than what they've done. And he goes on to say, thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. In Hebrew, it's a play on words. He looked for justice, which is mispot, but behold, bloodshed, mispah. I, I, I looked for mispot and I got mispah. And the same thing, he goes on to say, I looked for righteousness, which is tzedakah. I looked for tzedakah and I got tzedakah. So where's the righteousness going to come from? It has to come from the one who would make atonement for sin. The only one who can bring in everlasting righteousness. Only the Lord himself can do this. It's fascinating. The removal of sin that he accomplished on the cross will be appropriated by Israel as a nation when Christ returns. It's an amazing thought. Many passages that speak to this. I'll give you but one. Jeremiah 23, beginning in verse 5. Behold, the days are coming. I love it when the prophets say that. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land, in his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely and this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Well, not only is he going to bring in everlasting righteousness, we read that it'll be a time when he will seal up vision and prophecy. Seal up is a term that carries the idea of hiding from view and, and demonstrating that, that, some, that, a, that its functions are over. What, what would that would be? Well, vision, to seal up vision, the functions of the vision. What's vision? Revelation. Not only revelation, but prophecy, the message of the prophets. My dear professor, Dr. Whitcomb, said this, quote, similarly in the post-apostolic phase of church history, we have no further need of such ministries, possessing as we do the completed revelation of God in Holy Scripture. He's referring here to vision that is special revelation and prophecies and so forth. He went on to say, during the first half of the 70th week of Daniel, two witnesses will prophesy to Israel. I need to back up. We have no further need of such ministries, possessing as we do the completed revelation of God in Holy Scripture. You know, we've got the closed canon here. We don't need somebody to come along and say, God told me this, God told me that. We don't need that. Don't pay any attention to that. But, he says, during the first half of the 70th week of Daniel, two witnesses will prophesy to Israel in order to launch the 144,000 and others into global witness for Christ after the rapture of the church. You read about that in Revelation 11. 
But, he says, all such prophetic ministries will end forever at our Lord's return to earth. So, it's during this time, he's going to bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, and then finally, to anoint the most holy place. The term anoint means to officially inaugurate something into public ministry. And what is the most holy place? It could be translated literally, the holy of holies. This underscores the profound importance of the millennial temple that is described in Joel 3 and verse 18, Isaiah 60, verse 7, Jeremiah 33, verses 20 through 22, Ezekiel 37, 26 through 28, and then Ezekiel chapter 40 all the way to chapter 48. Prior to this, during the Great Tribulation, the Antichrist, we know, will desecrate a newly constructed temple. We read about that in our Lord's Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, also in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4, Revelation 13, 15. But when the Messiah returns, that will be done away with, and a magnificent new temple will be built. And Ezekiel tells us this, and the glory. Remember the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah that left, all right, and didn't return until Jesus returned and it was veiled in his body. Now it says the glory of the Lord will come into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east. Ezekiel 43 and verse 4. So the Lord will come into his temple. And of course, during the eternal state, there will be no temple because the Lord himself will be the temple. So these six objectives, Gabriel tells Daniel, will be accomplished in these 77s. 490 years that God has carved out of history to accomplish his purposes in delivering the people of Israel, their capital city, Jerusalem, consistent with all of his covenant promises. 490 years before Messiah would finally establish the long-awaited kingdom for which Daniel prayed. Now, the next verse tells him when the clock's going to start ticking, and we'll look at that beginning the next time. Oh, dear friends, what a, what a glorious future awaits the redeemed. Amen? And, and what a glorious God to not only make this possible, but to make it certain. Oh, I get so excited when I think about it. All of this stuff we deal with is one day going to be over. And the Lord is going to reign. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these eternal truths. We pray as always that by the power of your spirit, you will ignite our hearts in praise to the one who gave himself for us our Redeemer and our coming King. And Lord, for those that may not know you, that may have some religion, but they have really never been broken over their sin. They've never cried out to you for the mercy that you will give as a result of repentant faith. I pray that you will break their hearts, give them no sleep upon their pillow until they do business with you. We commit this to you by your grace and for your glory. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.